Yeah. Okay, let's get this web conference underway. Tēnā koutou katoa, greetings everyone. Haere mai and welcome to the Sustainable Seas virtual field trip. Uh, this field trip is during Sea Week, so it's perfectly timed for us to learn more about our very precious marine environment. And you're lucky enough this morning to have Lee Tate, our expert with us, flown all the way from, it was Christchurch, wasn't it? Yeah. But got stuck in Auckland last night and we're not sure whether it was because there were some serious thunderstorms here last night or whether it was a mechanical fault with the plane but anyway Lee had to fly in this morning so he's already had a busy morning but Lee do you want to tell us a little bit about your work? Hi everyone um, so my name's Lee Tate I'm a marine ecologist working for NIWA my, my um, background has been in trying to understand how marine ecosystems operate and and how we can better manage stresses impacting them. Um, one, of the, one of the tools that I've been using recently is um, our aerial drones, which give us a, a big view of, of marine areas, particularly those that we can see when the tide goes out. Um, I also pilot what's called an ROV, which is a remote operated vehicle, and I use that to look at ecosystems below the water. We can only see to a certain level through the water from aerial drones and we use the remote operated vehicle to peek beneath the waves and have a look at ecosystems and how we can better manage them from the range of stresses we put on them. Excellent, thanks Lee. And um, really interesting, today's going to be all about the high-tech stuff. Uh, over the last couple of days you've worked with Kura and she is lucky enough to be able to dive a lot of locations but of course you can imagine that diving's not that easy and with um, murkiness in the water sometimes the visibility is really poor and could have talked to us a lot about the challenges of, of physically having to go and dive places so it's going to be cool today to see some of the tech that's helping out um, the likes of local observations and adding to those so it's going to be a great daily. So at the moment we're here at Ohope Wharf. Um, you can see it's a beautiful day. Looking around, we've got the wharf there and the harbour, Ohiwa Harbour behind us. And do check out the videos from the last couple of days because they've been a really good introduction to life in the harbour. Looking forward to a good day today and we're hoping it's not going to get too windy so we can launch those drones. So welcome along to all our speaking schools. It's great to see your enthusiastic faces here in the Zoom room this morning. We'll get underway with questions and our speaking school this morning is Te Reringa School. Welcome along, great to have you. And if you can say your name, just your first name, uh, to start your question, then we know who we're talking to. And we'll get started with question number one, please. Hi, I'm Ben. Are there still problems and threats within our marine reserves? Kia ora Ben, great questions to start. Thank you. Lee? Yeah, thanks Ben. That's a really interesting question and um, marine reserves uh, have been set up in a range of places to help preserve some of those species that are extracted from you know, those, those um, fish that we catch. And marine reserves do a really good job of protecting them, especially the ones that stay locally. But there isn't fish that will move well beyond those marine reserves, which can still be fished. Um, 
I think one of the most important things about marine reserves is that they help give ecosystems like a resilience to other changes. So if an ecosystem is affected from fishing, then it has a better, uh, more potential to um, do well through other events. Um, other events include uh, big rainfalls and, and lots of sediments entering these zones. And of course, protecting from fishing doesn't stop that. Um, protecting from fishing also doesn't stop climate change events. So um, by protecting some aspects of an ecosystem, we can help it be more resilient to those other changes, especially climate change. So yes, there is a, a lot of other threats to marine protected areas, but it's a really good tool for helping um, helping those ecosystems survive through other events. Thanks, mm. Ben. Yeah, really good question, Ben. All about keeping yourself healthy, and, and sometimes that might mean um, eating better, but sometimes that might not be enough and you might need to do something else. So, so we can think about what aspects are affecting an ecosystem and try and control as many as we can to keep it as, as strong and resilient and healthy as possible. Really interesting concept, and you might know about marine reserves in your area, and you might want to find out a bit more about them and how they're, they're um, helping the whole area around them as well. Thanks, Ben. And question number two now, please. Katie, have there been any noticeable, noticeable effects from climate change? Good question, Eddie. Any ideas, Lee? Um, so I don't have a, a huge understanding of Ahiwa. Um, my, most of my research happens in the South Island, um, particularly Dunedin, um, all the way to Marlborough Sounds, um, and also a little bit in Antarctica as well. So I'm certainly um, have some experience of climate change impacts, and they, they definitely do occur. So, um, one thing that we do see is um, heat waves, which are longer water over summertime, and they can have big impacts to marine ecosystems. Um, and kelp forests have have really suffered from heat wave events over multiple summers. Um, I, th I think that the the thing about climate change is that it's a an average increase over time. So it's really hard to determine the impacts of that really slow moving change compared to these extreme events. Um, so I, I think there's, the story's not closed on that one. I think there's, there's probably some more subtle impacts that are very, very hard to detect. Um, but there's also really dramatic changes that we see happen all at once. So it, it falls into two slightly different categories, but regardless, um, it's a scary to think that there's gonna be increasing numbers of these extreme events. And I think that is probably where a lot of the real impacts will start to happen. Mm, and I guess that's where it's really important. Just gonna button there, Sally. So halfway, yep. halfway through Lee's answer, the sound went really big and rumbly, but at the beginning and the end, it was fine. So I'm just wondering whether you've got your hands on your computer or you've, when you're just shifting it, that you're touching the microphone. I don't know. You haven't touched the volume I'll at all. Closer, yeah, I'm not sure, Barry. Um, I just move it slightly, and then I'll, I'll try not to do that. That's. We'll see if that helps. Sorry about that. Um, oh, no, it's, it's so, right. so Lee was, was basically talking about 
long-term changes. We don't quite know what's what's going to happen as a result of climate change because it's a, a slow process. And we know that we've started on this process is the problem. Um, so we're in for a certain amount of change, but we don't know what it's going to look like in certain areas. Um, but we do know that we tr need to try and minimize that change. And really interesting what Lee was talking about before in terms of resilience, get, getting things as healthy as possible so that they can deal with those changes when they do arise. It's, it's a bit like you, when you're feeling strong and healthy, you can kind of cope with everything and things are going well. But when you get a bit, a bit sick or a bit run down, life's just not so easy. So it's the same with an ecosystem. Okay, I think now we're up to question number three. I do apologise, I don't have the questions in front of me because I got them last night and I'm on the road, so I can't print them. Maybe if they're in the chat window, that might help. They are. Um, they are. They are. Good stuff, Barry. One, one um, at a time. One at a time. Okay. Um, it probably helps too because I might get people's names wrong. Otherwise, I saw some faces earlier. I probably got someone's name, name wrong. Apologies. It was Katie, not Eddie. <laughs> oh, see, I'm getting old. My hearing's failing me. <laughs> Sorry, Katie. It was a great question. Okay, moving on from Katie, we are now up to question number three, please. Charlie, how many fish, for example, snapper, would be a sustainable recognition limit? And should there also be a size limit for big snapper? So fish bigger than 50 centimetres also have to be let go. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Charlie. That is a really great question. Um, what you've described is referred to as a slot fishery. Um, it's a way of um, keeping the, the large individuals, the large fish, which also produce the most babies. So um, it, that mechanism has been used in the Marlborough Sounds for the blue cod fishery, and it has actually been really successful in helping that population recover from overfishing. Um, it does have issues because what does end up happening is you end up catching the big fish, handling them, and then letting them go. So there is a, a mortality associated with that. Um, but like you say, I think it's there is the potential for that to be a good mechanism to help preserve um, the breeding stock of a fishery. Um, in terms of how many fish, that's a that's a, something I couldn't answer, um, and it's something that I don't think anyone can really answer at this stage. But what is happening is um, researchers are trying to understand how many fish recreational fishermen are catching, which has uh, in the past been one of those numbers they don't really know. So they have a good record of commercial catch but almost none on recreational. So combining accurate numbers from the two will be really important for setting a total fishery limit. Um, and through that, you would manage the recreational limits to fit within that and the commercial limits so that everyone um, gets a, a piece of the pie. Yeah, and it's interesting because there's been lots of changes with uh, fishing commercially, and I know uh, fishermen now have to report electronically. They used to have to write all their catch on pieces of paper, and now they have to report electronically. And there's talk that um, people might in the future be able to download, say, an app if they're a recreational fisherman or fisherwoman, a fisher, 
um, and record their catch so that we get more data on recreational fishing as well as commercial fishing. So I'd watch this space because I think that technology is not far away and it might be something you can contribute to. You can tell um, people how many fish you're catching in a certain area and then they can build up that database so they know more about fishing, not just commercially, you know, the big the big boys in the industries, um, but you know, the likes of you and I, if we go fishing, we can say how much we catch as well and that data all builds up and helps us to understand a fishery much better so that we can manage it better because things are changing all the time and we might have to change our snapper limits or our, our legal sizes. So that's a really good question. Thanks, Charlie. Question four now, please. Hi, I'm Titan. And if there are an increasing number of sharks in the harbour, would that be good or bad? Mm, interesting. Mm. Lee, any ideas? You might not have a clue about this one. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Um, I, think, um, I think there's obvious misconceptions with sharks people tend to think of the, the big nasty ones um but as i'm sure you guys are all aware there's a huge array of species of sharks and um one particularly worrying thing about sharks is that they have really slow reproduction they they only they actually produce live live birth whereas a lot of other fish release their eggs and those eggs grow into little fish um, many sharks actually give live birth to um, a small number of animals. And that means that they're really vulnerable to overfishing. So I think more sharks is, is a good thing. And I, I think the other thing about a, an animal like a shark is that they tend to sit at the, towards the top of the food chain. And if you've got healthy sharks, it kind of says something about the rest of the ecosystem um, and how well that's doing. Um, so if, an ecosystem's kind of like a, a food pyramid. You often hear about a food web, but at the bottom of that pyramid, you have um, your plants or your seaweeds, and there's a lot, a lot of seaweeds, and a lot, a lot of seaweeds can um, lead into small amount of fish, and a small amount of fish can lead to an even smaller amount of sharks. So if we've got lots of sharks up here, then we've got everything working all through that um, food pyramid. And it's a, a good sign that an ecosystem is potentially healthy and doing well. So more sharks is good. Mm, yeah, and we forget that it's, it's really like a jigsaw puzzle. And if we start removing just one piece, we, we affect the whole picture. So we, we might get scared of sharks, but hey, too bad. It's their environment. And I think um, we need to remember that most of them aren't a threat at all. And they're amazing creatures. And that's a great question. Thank you, Titan. So that brings us to question five now, please. Hey, Ms. Meg. What new ideas do you have for how to protect marine areas? For example, should New Zealand have more marine reserves? Ah, good question. I think that's from Meg. So new ideas about protecting marine areas? Yeah, thanks, Meg. Um, I think that question kind of links nicely with Ben's question as well um, about um, the threats to marine reserves. Um, I think, I mean, I think more marine reserves is definitely a good thing. I think, like we mentioned in Ben's question, that keeping that ecosystem healthy and resilient to other changes 
is a really good start. And it's one of the tools that we um, have readily available to use. Um, some of those other stresses I mentioned, like sediments or climate change, it's often a, a lot harder to track where we can change our actions to make those um, problems less of a threat. Um, but luckily, there is a lot of work going on in our terrestrial and our freshwater environments to improve the filtering that our, um, our on-land systems do. So planting of riparian vegetation and other land, uh, other changes on the land can actually have really good flow on benefits to marine ecosystems. So a marine reserve is certainly one way of helping um, but another way of helping is the whole land to the sea management of our of our country. And if we can manage right from the, the top of our mountains down to our oceans, then that gives us the best opportunity that, that we have to protect not only our marine ecosystems, but all the ecosystems in between. And if they're all functioning well, then they can potentially help all the way down to the sea. So um, I think you're right, marine reserves are a good idea and perhaps we should have more of them, but we also need to think about other actions that we can take that can improve the health of our ecosystems. Thanks, Meg. Yeah, and um, if you join us on the river restoration field trip at the end of this month, you'll get to see um, how restoring a river from the, all the way from the mountains to the sea um, can impact on not only the health of that river and the surrounding land, the terrestrial, and it can also help the marine area. So the land and, and the sea are, are very much linked. So we need to think about how we're affecting things on land and how that affects our ocean. Thanks, Meg. Question number six, please. Hi, I'm Stina. Are there mangroves within the Ohiwa Harbour? What do they do within the ecosystem? Good question. Thanks, Dina. Thanks, Dina. I had to turn around and look because I'm not particularly familiar with this harbour. Um, I think there are, yeah, <laughs> there are mangroves. Um, they are, a, they, we call them an ecosystem engineer because they kind of create a, an ecosystem in their own right. So mangroves have those roots that you've seen that come up out of the mud. Um, and that has a lot of really important roles in an ecosystem. It, um, it helps stabilize sediment so that animals can live inside, that, inside the sand and the, and the mud. Um, it, it has other benefits to humans as well. It can actually mitigate the, mitigate, um, it can actually stop the, the effects of say, tidal waves or tidal surges because it can actually protect our coastal margin from those sorts of events um, and it has a, a range of other benefits it puts oxygen in the water for fish um, and the air for humans uh, they provide a lot of really important functions um, to not only the marine ecosystem but to land as well so yeah they, they are a, a very important part of the ecosystem and like I say, they provide habitat for a range of things and um, not only the things that live in the mud, but also juvenile fish often use those environments as kind of like a, a hiding place from predators. So maintaining those types of environments is really key all the way down to fisheries where um, fisheries rely on those juveniles surviving well in these environments and making it back out to sea. 
Thanks, Lee. And I can confirm we saw some man mangroves yesterday and Andrew, the learns teacher that's filming on this field trip, said, oh, they're much smaller than the ones that we've got up in Northland. Um, so I don't know whether or where I live in Dunedin, there, there are no mangroves. It's way too cold for them. So it'll be interesting to find out what grows instead and, and does that kind of same filtering role and habitat um, provision that, that mangroves do down there. So that might be something that I could research. Excellent question. Thanks, Dina. So question number seven now, please. Hi, I'm Grace. Our school is by the Ocean Chromance Peninsula and there are a lot of pine forests close by. What problems would cause an ocean where the trees are cleared and then we have a lot of rain? Okay, so you're, cl you're close to uh, the ocean in Coromandel Peninsula. Uh, a lot of pine forests close by. So what problems can that cause, Lee? Thanks, Grace. Um, I think um, it, it's important to note that the forestry itself is, is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, those, those trees are very useful for a, a range of um, you know, different products as well as for um, mitigating, for sucking up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere uh, and turning that into something that's stored and um, no longer causing um, global warming. One thing that can be a problem is when forestry clearance, like you say, is, is done on a very large scale, um, so much so that when it rains, uh, when it's on hill slopes and when it rains, it can allow a lot of sediment to be washed down into rivers and then out to sea. So once that sediment does reach the sea, there, uh, there are a lot, of organ a lot of animals and plants that are really negatively affected by that. Um, a lot of animals that filter feed, so um, extract food from the water column, um, will also, while they're doing that, extract a lot of sediment as well. And so they have to start spitting out that sediment um, and working out what's good, what's food and what's sediment. And they spend a bit of energy doing that and that can have really um, negative consequences to their growth and to their reproduction. Um, likewise, plants, uh, marine plants like kelps and seaweeds, um, they require light to photosynthesize and that sediment blocks that light, um, or at least reduces it. And that can have, much like the, the filter feeding, feeding organisms, um, can affect the amount of energy they get. Um, so there, there are a lot of consequences to big sediment plumes, but we have a bit less of an understanding of um, how long those impacts last and, and the, the area over which those impacts occur. So a sediment, Plume is often an event that comes with a big rain, a big a lot of, uh, a lot of sediment goes out into the ocean, and then it dilutes and moves away. But it goes somewhere, and it is possible for that to have impacts to ecosystems further than when the event uh, than where the event actually occurred. So, good question, Grace. Mm, and you could do a bit more research on sediment sedimentation and how we can reduce that. Good stuff. And question number eight now, please. Hi, I'm Angie. When it is low tide, do the eco stay in the harbour or do they move about with the tide? 
Ah, when it's low tide, do they eat, stay in the harbour or do they move about with the tide? So the fish, tell us about that, Lee. So this is going to sound terrible, but what are eka? Fish. Eka is fish, okay. Thank you. Um, most fish do go out with the tide. Um, there are some species of fish um, that will stay in little homes like little mud holes um, and or um, there's a type of fish called a blenny which lives in oysters or other shellfish um, and so th those types of fish can actually stay um, hidden when the tide goes out. Most fish will travel out with the tide um, and different types of fish do different things and go to different places and um, we see and the other end of that a lot of fish when the tide comes in will follow that tide in right up into the shallows right up until um, they reach the shore so there's a lot of fish that do that because they can get protection from bigger predators that can't come right up into the shallows so that movement of fish up and down is is really quite a key process um, and they they find a lot of food up and the, the small ones find a lot of food right up in that high zone when the tide comes in and then they they likely go into deep channels and try and find places to hide when the tide goes out so it's a, um, a pretty important process and the, the tides are, um, a really fascinating part of where animals live not just the ones that move but the ones that um, stay still and don't move so they produce really the tide um, the tidal pattern produces really interesting patterns of um, species richness and um, how they utilize different parts of that cycle is is absolutely fascinating yeah it always surprises me how different an area can look when it's slow tide compared to high tide you know there might be lots of water one moment and then six hours later to that change good question thanks Hi, I'm Seth. The mussels are very important. So are the sea stars that eat them good or bad? And why have the numbers of the 11 armed sea star increased so much? Oh, that is a really interesting question, Seth. And we've been talking to Kura about that over the last couple of days. So if you haven't had a chance, do check out the videos about um, mussels and sea stars in Ohiwa Harbour. Um, Lee's from Christchurch. so. He's been looking at quite different research, so I'm going to jump in here and give a bit of an overview. Um, really, really interesting problem. We, we love our mussels. The environment loves the mussels because they filter the water. Uh, but the sea stars are native. They, they belong here as well. But somehow people have upset the balance and the sea stars have jumped in there going, yippee, I like all these changes. I'm, I'm multiplying. My population's getting bigger and bigger. There's, there's more and more sea stars and the mussels are struggling to keep up because the sea stars eat the mussels. So um, the, there's various theories about why there's so many sea stars and scientists don't actually know for sure. And that's why there's so much research going on to try and find out what, what's happened to upset this balance. It's not the sea stars fault. Um, it's probably what people have done to change the environment. And one of the theories is that, that sea stars are really adaptive. 
they're really good at changing quickly. I guess that's, they might reproduce really quickly. So each generation's a little bit stronger. I don't know, don't know a lot about it and neither did the scientists, but they think that sea stars might have adapted to changes that people have made quicker than the muscles. So they're, they're uh, multiplying in number, but there's lots of other theories as well. So watch this space, scientists are still working on it and it might be something that one day you can work on and provide us some answers as well. Thanks, Seth. Brilliant questions this morning, Tereringa Te School. And it's now the final question from you guys. Question number 10, please. Uh, hi, everyone. My name's Tobias. And uh, are there any examples near the Oria Harbour where ecosystem has reached its tipping point? Uh, what were the consequences? Mm, any ideas, Lee? Yeah. Um... I think a tipping point is a, a really interesting concept. Um, it, the idea is that when some sort of problem like uh, sediments or nutrients becomes too high, um, there's a point at which the amount of them forces the ecosystem into a, a different state. Um, I think there are some there's probably some examples of estuaries in particular where nutrient loading in particular has become too high and that's caused the ecosystem to change into quite a different state. Um, the example that I'm more familiar with is the tipping point associated when um, urchins, um, sea urchins become too abundant and they start to eat kelp. And so you get this change from a kelp forest to what's known as an urchin barren and that that tipping point abruptly changes everything else. That a lot of the fish go, a lot of the other plants and animals can no longer live with and tolerate those urchins. And it's a tipping point. The worst thing about tipping points is that they don't, you can't necessarily change it right back to the other state um, straight away. So you have, uh, in the urchin example, 10, 10 urchins in a meter might be what it takes to clear out a kelp forest. But to improve that, to turn it back to a kelp forest, you'd need to get it all the way back to maybe less than one urchin in a meter. So there's this big difference between what caused the tipping point and what reverses it. And so it really, um, it really exemplifies why we need to stop things from reaching those points and help correct them before those big dramatic changes occur. Mm, and this, this is something that we didn't talk to Kuda about, but I'm sure it's part of the reason why they've been studying the, the sea star muscle. Um, some thoughts around if the sea star reverse it and we won't have any muscles in the harbour at all. And there has been a fear of that because uh, the number of muscles has declined hugely and quite recently as well. So we've now only got one natural muscle bed left when there used to be several and there used to be millions of muscles here in the, in the harbour. So we certainly wouldn't want the harbour to tip. So we've got to think about all the things that are impacting on that environment. Great question to finish. Thanks Tobias. And wonderful questions this morning. I know I've learned heaps and I hope you have too. Um, we've got a few more minutes to answer anybody else's questions if you'd like to pop them in the chat window. But a big thank you to, to Te Ringa Ringa School. Um, 
great to have you with us this morning and those quality questions have um, led us to lots and lots of discussion. So thanks very much, Lee, as well, for answering those. And we'll hang out for another few minutes to answer any questions. Thanks, everyone. So pop them in the chat window. Pop them in the questions. chat window, please. And um, if you just scroll down to the bottom of your screen, you'll just see a little thing that says chat that looks like a cloud. You click it, it pops up. You can just type it in there. So I've got one to just start with with um, myself. What's the what's the most fun part of your job, Lee? I'm wondering if it's the drone, but I, I don't know. I'm only guessing. Um, the favourite part of my job is any time I get in the water or on the water. So um, diving is another one of my specialties and I get to do a lot of that. And just recently I was lucky enough to do some ice diving in Antarctica and water that's negative two degrees. So um, to do that, we have to cut a hole in the sea ice and descend through that hole um, into an environment where the only exit is the same hole that you came through. So um, that was certainly one of my career highlights and uh, it'll be something that I hope to repeat. I'm pretty exciting. So thank you. There's a question from uh, Kira. Can you please explain how a crab breathes underwater? That's a cool question, Kira. Um, so as you guys know, we, we breathe oxygen. Um, everything that lives in the water also breathes oxygen but it's not in bubbles that they're breathing it. It's actually held and bound by water molecules. And so what most animals like crabs and fish do is they push water through a set of gills. Um, and for a crab, those gills happen to be sort of near its um, underside of its legs. And so what they do is they bring water in and they push it along those gills. And those gills have really fine little structures that catch those tiny, tiny bubbles that aren't really bubbles, and they absorb that. And so, it's um, it's a very interesting process. And different fish have, and different marine animals have different ways of doing it, but it's basically the same concept for all of them. They're trying to um, maximise the amount of water that are passing over these very, very fine structures. Um, and the faster and more energetic an animal it is, the more it has to do that to, to bring in more oxygen. Thanks. So from Lexi at St. Joseph's School in Queenstown, what is the worst human impact we're having on the ocean, in your opinion? Yeah, um, I don't even know if my opinion really encapsulates the whole range of things. So. Um, I think for me, the, the scariest thing is the combination of, of things. Um, I, I think um, if I had to pick a worst one, I think extreme temperatures are probably the scariest because they have really immediate effects to a lot of different ecosystems. So um, another one uh, along those same lines of with climate change is um, you may have heard of ocean acidification, which is... Um, the increasing CO2 in our atmosphere dissolves in the water and produces a, a weak acid. And that can affect anything that produces some form of shell or even bones. So that's a, a, another type of um, climate change related stress that is potentially affecting ecosystems 
very slowly and very under the radar without, without us having um, really good knowledge of where those impacts occurring, are occurring. So, yeah, I think there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of stresses combined. They can be really damaging. Um, but I think from an immediate noticeable impact, temperature change might be one of the, uh, one of the worst. Yeah, and it's really interesting because we talked um, with Kudra about this as well, and it's all those little changes that people have been making over time. We all do a bit of things because there's been less people around, but now there's more people, so we need to start changing the way we're doing things. But it's been little changes that have caused these big problems. So it's little changes that we can now make backwards to solve the problem. You know, we, we don't need to think that, oh, we have to change everything all of a sudden. We just need to make little changes back the other way and we can all make a difference. We never should forget that we've all got the power to make it a, a big change by those little changes. So all is not lost. <laughs> um, we've only got time for a few more questions. Yep, um, running out of time. And we want to get here. our drone launched before it gets too windy. Yep. So Lalani wants to know, Lee, have you found any fossils in the ocean? Yes, Leilani. Um, one, the, the main place I actually find fossils are um, along coastlines because coastlines are a, a great place where ancient rocks become eroded and they expose um, fossils um, very neatly. Um, mostly those fossils are shells of marine organisms and there's a lot of places throughout the world where it's really common to find those types of fossils. Um, very amazing to find them. And um, I think if you research even some of the local beaches, um, depending where you are, there's the possibility that you could even find your own. So um, keep an eye out, yeah. Thank you. So there's two more here from St. Joseph's in Queenstown. I'm going to do the second one first because I'm not interested in this one. What impact would the megalodon have on the ocean system if it was still alive? You know that thing that was a super shark? The giant shark. Ooh. Yeah. Any ideas, yeah, I don't know if I'm qualified to ask that one. Um, but what I would say is that it has, it had its point in time in evolution and when it was alive it was a a functioning part of that ecosystem and well positioned to catch a feed and do well. I think if you thought, if you tried to reintroduce something like that now, then perhaps evolution has surpassed it. Um, that's those types of animals have produced the sharks that we have now and they have, may have got smaller um, for very good reasons. Um, it may be a, a diet thing. It may be a, an efficiency thing. So, I don't necessarily think it would be a, a, a big change to ecosystems. I think my, my opinion is that evolution has probably passed on and it's become potentially redundant or inefficient. Thanks. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. Thanks, Lee. So, one um, more question. Yeah, that was from Harry. There's one more from um, Wood there be a difference if there was no algae in the ocean? That's from Sophia. And mm. seaweed or algae? We talked about That's seaweed. Right, yeah. Yeah. yeah um, 
you might not realize, but algae in our ocean, which includes both the seaweeds and the microscopic phytoplankton, are responsible for 50% of the oxygen that we breathe. So we would be lost without them, essentially. Um, they are a, a critical component of not only the oceans, but the, the world's functioning, the, the atmosphere, um, all, you know, the, the whole functioning of the earth relies on those organisms to keep sucking in carbon dioxide and keep producing oxygen. So yeah, without them, we wouldn't have the planet that we live on. Mm, very important to protect those producers because they provide for all of us. Fantastic. Thank you so much, everyone, for your wonderful questions today. The curious and the strange and the not so strange from um, the edge of Ohiwa Harbour during Sea Week today. So this is our final web conference for the field trip. So I hope you've enjoyed the field trip. I do hope you get a chance to check out all the videos and that you can join us on another field trip soon. So in the meantime, a big thank you to Lee. Well done, brilliant answers. And thanks everyone for listening in this morning and we can unmute microphones and all say a big goodbye. Thanks guys. I'll, I'll unmute everybody. Bye. Bye guys, well done. Have a great day. See ya. See ya. Well. See ya.